Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Today on the podcast, I will be speaking with Dr. Iglo Goodmansdottir, who is a psychologist from Iceland. In 2000 and 2003, she received a bachelor's and master's degree in psychology. In 2011, she received a licentiate degree in medical science, and in 2017, a PhD in medical science from the Childhood Cancer Research Unit in the Department of Women's and Children's Health at Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And her PhD was entitled, The Effects of Parenting a Child Diagnosed with Cancer, Distress, Resilience, and Vital Exhaustion, Living with Death in Your Face. Her research focuses on the experiences of parents who have a child with cancer and the stress and burnout that they face. She frames it from the perspective of vital exhaustion, which you will hear more about in the episode. She's published many papers on the topic and has held talks and workshops all over the world discussing her results. Her work was even referenced by the president of Iceland in January during his New Year's talk to the nation, which let's be honest, that kind of citation is every researcher's dream. What's more, Dr. Goodman's daughter is one of those rare academicians that lives what she researches because she is a parent of a childhood cancer patient. So she not only understands parental stress from an academic perspective, she understands it because she's lived it. And you can tell that her insights and passion for this topic were formed by more than a decade of supporting her son through cancer treatment. So I really enjoyed speaking with her, and I think you will enjoy listening to the conversation. In fact, I enjoyed it so much, the conversation actually went for two hours. So this is going to be a two-part episode. So today you are listening to the first of two episodes. So be sure to catch the second one when it is released. And lastly, let me say that her experience, both in research and with childhood cancer, is primarily in Iceland and Sweden which are both high-income countries. But her experiences are also universal. As a parent, having a child with a life-threatening illness is something that any parent with a child with cancer can relate to, no matter where in the world. Likewise, the experience of stress during treatment is also universal. So her insights are applicable no matter where you are, which is why I thought this was a very important conversation to have. Okay, without further ado, I give you my talk with Dr. Iglo, Goodman's daughter. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Goodman's daughter. I have been practicing saying her name, but uh, she's been gracious enough to join us on the podcast and talk about her work looking at vital exhaustion in the parents of children with cancer. So thank you for coming on the podcast, Dr. Goodman's daughter. Why don't you go ahead and kind of just give us a big picture overview about where your research tends to focus, like what is vital exhaustion and what is your research all about? Uh, my research is about the effects of having a child with cancer. And um, in the beginning, I was starting to look at the distress at large, just mapping what what happens uh, mentally and later physically having a child with cancer. And um, there is a lot of research on uh, mental distress, anxiety, depression, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, etc., when your child is diagnosed with cancer. And my first studies were on that matter. Later on, I realized that we had to look into the long-term distress factors. And um, I found the definition or the topic uh, or the term vital exhaustion coming from cardiologists named Ad Apples doing research from the early beginnings of the 80s looking into uh, the possibility of people having cardiac arrest or other heart diseases being having had some kind of fatigue before. And this was getting my interest as I had been into the field of uh, pediatric cancer as a psychologist and as a parent for 10 years. And uh, understanding that the need for psychiatric interests were at large 
for the parents, as the parents tend to be the primary patients, especially when the child is young. So I started to look into uh, the long-term distress or the possibilities of long-term distress. And all of the studies I looked into, by my opinion, or many of them were short to that matter, that many of them, most of them, did not look into maybe more than one year, 18 months, few Nordic studies up to five years. So as I was reading into the Weitzel exhaustion term, I decided that I wanted to look into that and see if uh, parents of children with cancer had, there were some changes from the beginning of the from startup diagnosis until to 10 to 15 years after diagnosis. So that is was my measurement and using the mastered questionnaire to do so. So your research interest really came from being interested in the experience of the parents and the long-term outcomes associated with their their experience going through cancer treatment, it sounds like. So that's kind of what set you off in this direction of looking at vital exhaustion. And I heard you say that you have some personal experience with childhood cancer and you've relayed that a little bit to me, but does your experience contribute at all to your interest in this area? And can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes, definitely. Uh, I've had many, many questions regarding this through the years. And uh, at my dissertation on the 30th of November, 2017, uh, my opponent asked me, several times and in the beginning and the end that um, uh, having a personal experience is that pros and cons uh, when doing research and um, the thing is that I could only answer uh, maybe but from my uh, point of view I hid uh, or not in hiding but from the beginning I was a clinical psychologist in the year 2003 uh, my youngest a child only nine weeks old was diagnosed with a horrible uh, type of cancer. Every, every cancer type, obviously, is horrible, but this one is uh, infantile uh, ALL, uh, acute lymph- lymphoblastic leukemia. And I was quite well read uh, in, in science and everything, but I didn't know so much about cancer. And I had this image or thought that uh, ALL was the most curable type of cancer like uh, in the in the western world we have like up to 80% of children in the peak age between 2 and 8 um, being cured from this type of cancer so when my son uh, was diagnosed from one day to the other 9 weeks old and we had uh, and maybe 36 hours of waiting before we knew which type it was. We got the answer. It was ALL, and uh, I almost fell on the floor. Thank you, God, because this is the easier curable type. Uh, learning to know at the same the same hour that uh, when children are diagnosed with this type of cancer under the age of 12 months, uh, the prognosis are. Uh, horrible and uh, the disease is very very um, individual being a psychologist uh, understanding that I was in complete shock not remembering the next two weeks some glimpse something I remember very clearly but uh, decided not to google too much two days after this diagnosis I understood we had seven people around us three doctors, two nurses, one priest and one social worker. And being a psychologist and my, my the father of my children as well, uh, I was standing and thinking, where are the, where's the psychologist? My child is uh, going to die or maybe he's having a lethal disease. Why is there not any psychologist? And the weird thing is that, of course, I asked uh, and I was told that there was no psychologist at the children's ward in Iceland. I was supposed, or we were supposed, to call uh, the children's psychiatric ward, which was five kilometers away, and that is not much in, in the, the world, but when I needed an appointment. And 
So the first, of course, as a parent, your child is dying and you don't even know what your name is, how, how you're supposed to know how you're feeling. So I let it go. I was kind of shocked inside and thought it was very strange. My son went through very harsh treatment for six months. And um, when he was almost nine months old, the decision has been taken that he had to be bone, bone marrow transplanted. And this, this was supposed to be done in Sweden, as we don't have this kind of uh, knowledge here in Iceland. Uh, and we are so small that we can, that it's not possible to do it here. So we uh, were flown up to Iceland, or to Sweden, sorry. And that was a long journey for four months. And we came back to Iceland in September, June 2004. And we were in Iceland for nine months. And uh, a year after the first transplant, he, I flew up to Sweden for the one-year uh, checkup and alone with him. And my son Benjamin, he was then 20 months old and he took the first five steps of walking the day before he was uh, going into surgery or drawing drew, drawing the bone marrow from him to see how his uh, values were. And, and I was very optimistic. He looked wonderful. And uh, with his disease, the first year is critical. So the 18th of March, 2005, I phoned and got to know that uh, his blood picture was skewed. And this, I was alone in Sweden with my 20 months old child. And I had one three-year-old waiting in Iceland and one six-year-old. I knew that it was back. So I blacked out and went home to Iceland again and uh, started treatment. It was recently, just that year, started to open the door for a second transplant. So we had, so at this time, a week after I came back home, one and a half year after the first diagnosis, uh, I call it the, the when you're hit by the train of hell, again and uh, i remember standing again at uh, in a room with uh, many doctors and called into a meeting with three doctors and one nurse again thinking where is the psychologist here i am again my child is is doomed to die and at that point of time, in March or, or beginning of April 2005, I decided to uh, find out why is there no psychologist? Why? Why? Where is the the traumatic team for taking care of parents in this situation? And I went from uh, one uh, director to the other. I went. I spoke to all of the big bosses at the hospital and had many, many, many meetings. We went to another, back to Sweden again. In September 2005, I recognized that it was a study, ongoing study on parental distressing on child with cancer. So I called the person in charge, had a meeting, and there I started the long, long journey of seeking ethical permissions in Iceland, translating 40 pages of a booklet of uh, different psychological uh, instruments, and one of them was uh, the master questionnaire. So after there, we in the beginning of, or in the middle of year 2007, we started with first uh, studies, and uh, in 2014, I was calculating the vital exhaustion part. So many years, a lot of hard work. So, But that is, in the meantime, I realized in these years, like in seven, eight years, I realized that I had to develop this kind of study looking into long-term distress because I was at the same time working as a clinical psychologist here in Iceland and was meeting all these parents at 
Swedish hospitals, at Icelandic hospitals, at hospitals in the States as I went with my son to have a lot of um, tests done. All these parents I met that said again and again to me, it's been five years, it's been 10 years, and I'm completely exhausted. I feel like an empty shell. So I thought, this, I cannot look. My supervisor at the time didn't want to look into this, didn't think that was precious. But I said, no, I had a different angle. So I said, I have too many clinical observations not to do this. So stubborn as I am, I decided, no, I want to look into long-term distress and see if we can see some correlation between the trauma of having the diagnosis and the levels of exhaustion, if that was as at all uh, visible in this uh, group of population. Uh, nobody had looked into this kind of long-term distress before in this group, so that was new. That's quite the route you took to get to your research thesis. I know that's a um, very personal story to share, so thank you for being willing to. And I just have to ask, because you told it so well, I mean, do you mind sharing the outcome with your son and kind of what happened with the treatment? That's fine. Benjamin, my son, uh, born in, in, in July uh, 2003, uh, like I said, he got this horrible type of cancer. Uh, nobody in Iceland had survived that type of cancer before. It was two girls. In Iceland, we are so few. We're only 340,000 people. So to see the big picture in this, uh, you have to understand that we have one child per 15, 20 years having infantile uh, ALL. And this is the same in the rest of the world. So in 2006, when he had the second transplant, I uh, was fortunate that his doctors uh, had me as one of the part of their team, actually. And, and that became more and more. The years came by because I knew him best. But the wonderful thing was that as I am an academic and a researcher, so as much as I didn't want to Google it, because I did at first, and I saw all the horrible uh, forums of mothers uh, speaking about their children having the same diagnosis and everybody died. And we we got to know here in Iceland that the only two children having this diagnosis since uh, 1980 Benjamin was the third in three years or in five years, actually, it was, but it was very uncommon. And this, they have not had any child after 2003. So, the, I mean, the, the prevalence is about one every 15, 20 years. Since the same in Sweden, we have one per year. We have around 300 children diagnosed in Sweden with cancer. So, we, so it's the same statistics. But as I didn't have anything as I asked what happened to the other two. Uh, I, we got to know that they were dead, both of them. And uh, the second before Benjamin died just one month earlier, his diagnosis. So we didn't have anything to hold on to. But uh, in 2006, I got this wonderful study from one of his doctors in Sweden. Uh, and I think it was a Spanish study that showed that at least they took... Uh, children from all over the world because there's a few and uh, because I was trying to hold on to something is it better to have a transplant or not because the treatment arm are two ways so if you are a bad bad prognosor you tend to go into the transplant state if you, you're not if you're a good prognosor you you will take a two and a half year old treatment Benjamin was a bad prognosor so uh, <laughs> horrible to say luckily enough uh, he was uh, and uh, he has two siblings uh, three and uh, two and two and five years old older than him and we are a good gene pool so uh, both of his siblings could be uh, donors which was um, exceptional and is exceptional yeah and, uh, that's amazing yeah so um, the tough thing was that uh, our oldest son, that was five at the time, as he was a boy, races tend to show that if you're at the same sex, it's better. So he was used. And this is horrible because they are used. The kids are used. And um, that was a horrible journey. And uh, because 
you tend not to take so much care of. Oh, we did, but the system was not so clear. And at least the cells were platinum, like we were told. Our son Nicholas, it was uh, it was platinum cells. And the difficult thing was that when Benjamin relapsed, that you had to make him understand that there was nothing wrong with his cells. They had fought fiercely and uh, we were very, very clear and very, because we had Tekla that was turning three at the time. And and you understand when you're a psychologist, you, you so many people have asked us, does it have it, have it helped, it, helped you at all that you were, both of you were psychologists? And we both say, yes, in a way, and only in the way that, we realized that we had to do as practical as we could, uh, having three children uh, from five and under, and having one that could give some physical cure and the other one that was not chosen to. So we said from the beginning that Tekla, that was two at the time, she gave the smile, and which was true because uh, Benjamin loved her smile and her giggling, and she's very hyperactive. A year later, we had to explain to our son, Nicholas that he had not failed. And that was a horrible meeting. Again, telling him at the same time when they had decided that they would do the experimental thing of a second transplant, which was at the time not, the, I think Benjamin was number five or something like that looking into the big blue eyes of the five-year-old almost turning six that said, but can't Tekla, the sister, do at this time? And you had to say no. And again, have to put the child into that kind of misery and uh, an anxious child. This is a horrible procedure. Not, I mean, everything about it, this, uh, bursting veins and everything. And, and he is a kind of, or he was an uh, anxious boy. And again, you have to explain to the daughter that she's not chosen either this time to uh, save her brother but she still have that smile and that laughter and for 10 years Benjamin had the second transplant and he got all the uh, graft versus host disease symptoms that almost killed him for several times he got internal bleedings acute and he got in the end uh, he was cancer-free for 10 years, and uh, he's the only one I know of that has beaten infantile ALL twice. So five years later, he had developed a chronic graft versus host disease in the form of bronchiolitis uh, obliterans, which is a lung disease. And this I discovered in uh, Washington as I went I got him um, I applied for a study for him for people with uh, GVHD having a bone marrow transplant and he was the only child and people in the states know that getting into a, a research study in, in NIH in, in Washington is, is uh, really really hard but he did and that was in September 2009 we had the three diagnoses possible from Washington. It took 10 months uh, more to get the doctors in Iceland to look at his pictures and his uh, reports. And in May 2010, he was diagnosed with uh, BO. We haven't had a pediatric pulmonologist here in Iceland since 2004, I think. Uh, so in the end, I pushed that we had adult pulmonologists to give us the diagnosis, the final diagnosis. And uh, that was the beginning of a long journey, having follow-up in Sweden and in the end to the October 2013. He was, so the, this is a lethal diagnosis. So everybody knows that we have tried everything, uh, fetal membrane cells in Sweden and uh, twice and uh, every cure possible and in the end it was only lung transplant left and they had kind of in Sweden and Iceland had uh, cut him off and I said he had just recently been in Sweden to check up and his heart was good and his liver was good and I fought for nine months 
that at least they would evaluate him. And they did in Sweden, as this is not uh, either done here in Iceland because uh, we don't have the the, uh, facilities to do it. And in January 14th, 2015, 2014, sorry, he was accepted to the list. Nobody believed he, he would because there is a lot of studies done. And this is only black and white. Either you're fit to do the transplant or not. Um, so we waited for 14 months. The 2nd of April 2015, is, uh, we always say that Benjamin, he was very thoughtful of everybody's needs. So the 2nd of April, his sister Tekla was then 14 and she was uh, having her confirmation and so on and she was really into that. And then 5th of June, same year, she would have had a birthday. So the 1st of May 2015, Benjamin decided it was time to let go. The six days before that, he had had a FIFA tournament for people knowing football, he loved football, and he had been planning that for several months. And uh, we had around 50 people in the house playing uh, FIFA. And it was the second time he held this kind of tournament. Benny was a loved person. This time, his lungs were really tired. And uh, in the evening, he uh, we went home and he said that he didn't even get the third place. like the year before and he was devastated that he was a bit irritated and tired and I was explaining to him it's like when you're playing five places in a house you have 50 people that's normal people get tired the day after five days before he died he started talking about that he was tired that he was depressed and uh, that he was thinking of maybe committing suicide. And he then at the time he was 11 years old and nine months. And being the cool guy he was, he did not take two or three weeks. Like when people go into the stage of dying with bronchiolitis obliterans, he took only one day. So the 1st of May 2015, uh, we went up to the hospital uh, at 5.30 p.m. 7.30 p.m. he got unconscious. Three hours and 42 minutes later he was dead. It sounds like quite a journey he was on. Um, that's a pretty incredible story and again pretty personal so thank you for relaying to us your experience and Benjamin's experience. He sounds like a pretty incredible kid. Well I appreciate you telling that story because I think it's relevant for today's discussion too about vital exhaustion because rarely do you find a researcher who has so much personal experience with the subject that they're researching so it's helpful to know that you know what you are talking about it sounds like you have experience firsthand was that helpful as you were doing your research i don't know this experience did it inform kind of how you approached this topic uh yeah because like I said earlier, in that sense that I realized that also being a clinical psychologist, having the privilege, uh, if you want, to, to be an academic, work in the clinical field, and being a parent to a child with cancer, taking this journey for almost 12 years, you, you get different angles. And, and you, you realize that even though I'm a person, I was... Uh, from 2007, I went to my first uh, congress at SIOP in Mumbai, and I, I always changed hats. So it was not that I was hiding that I was also a parent. I just realized that if we tend to, academics tend to, and doctors and professional persons, that if we have yet another parent, uh, we we find we become a bit skeptical, not the, that intentionally, but but we do. And I realized this from the beginning that it was very important for me that when I was doing a lecture or or um, presenting my results on the academic or the scientific uh, forum, it was very important uh, that I was 
I was presenting myself as thus. I was a PhD student. I was a clinical psychologist. And that was it. Of course, through the years, people have asked me, how come you, you, how come you have thought, how did you think of this? And, and at the latest, which was for, for myself, when I was defending my thesis, I got this professor in, in stress research that said to me, I didn't understand until I read your epilogue in your thesis how you got all these weird angles that I haven't seen before. And it's the same as the opponent said, because in the epilogue, uh, I decided to have an epilogue in my thesis that why did I go into this? And uh, because all of the four people, the when I was defending my thesis, the opponent and the others were, and this I've heard so many times at SIOP, for example, that why did you think of that? Why did you want to look into that? I mean, why? And my answer is because I've been there. And not because I've been there as a person, but I've been there with, uh, like I said, Icelandic parents, Swedish parents, American parents. So this is not something personal in that matter, but I've had the privilege, if you want to say, that I have been able to see all the colors in this horrible nightmare that you go through. So, so like I've been reading and, and citing research and which irritates me, I have to be honest, that a year after your child is diagnosed, you're fine according to, to DSM. I mean, diagnostical uh, terms. And that's for me, for me, it's, I have to just say it plain stupid. You should never ever, you should look into the symptoms, not into the uh, diagnostical terms, because it might be that I'm not I, anxious. I'm not, not now, but I have trouble sleeping. I don't have PTSD having a child with cancer, but it's a lot of things on our journey that. Everybody would say that, of course, I have experiences, my child dying of internal bleedings. I mean, that is 2DSM-5 now. That is would concur with the, the concept of PTSD. But it doesn't matter because we have to look into the symptoms. And it's completely stupid for me that we are looking into the diagnostical terms or definitions instead of symptoms. Because, And this is shown in other research we lose between 60 to 70% of parents that are having more symptoms than the average population or the population having PTSD, for example, but because they do not fulfill criteria A, which I don't want to go into maybe too much now because that is new in DSM-5, they have changed the criteria A to something that it has to be some kind of violence or bleeding. But if you're a parent and you understand that somebody says to you, child has lethal disease, no matter blood or violence, you are traumatized. And this is like getting this all together in my brain all these years with my professional uh, clinical self, for me, of course, I got an insight that not so many have. That, for me, it's an angle I wish I didn't have to get, but I did. And if I wouldn't use it, it would be horrible. But of course, I've, I've been sitting with on, on the, the unit of, of pediatric cancer research and and I've been having symposiums with sitting with doctors, been working 30 years in the field. And they said, wow, I never thought that parents answering, no, we're fine when I ask them, how are you doing? It's because we only have 15, 20 minutes and they want to use it to focus on the child, not on their well-being. So this is, I mean, this is a world that if you can put it together and you can change the hat and we can get all the hats into one hat. I think, and you have to understand that all the time you have to be 
a science scientific person always you cannot i was doing quantitative research i mean i had almost 500 parents i couldn't go and just choosing my results my results are my results that i got this idea of vital exhaustion was of course because i'm i'm a nerd and i need to understand everything and <laughs> and I, in that sense that suddenly i was into the biological model and i made my own intervention model and I made my own vicious cycle because because I had in the end the ability which I'm fortunate to stack so much knowledge in my brain that suddenly I, it makes sense for me obviously for many other people so yeah that makes sense well I'll let you put back on your researcher hat for a while thank you for sharing with us your experiences as when you were wearing your parent hat Transitioning now to talking about vital exhaustion, tell us a little more about this idea. Like, what is vital exhaustion specifically? Well, vital exhaustion is uh, from the beginning, uh, like I said earlier, from from uh, coming as a uh, the definition from Ad Apples, which is cardiologist uh, looking into possible explanations of something coming before cardiac rest, hearing the word fatigue again and again and again in hundreds of patients. So the difference, I mean, if you if you think, if you simplify it, like uh, vital exhaustion is shown in, in many uh, both psychological but also physical complaints. Uh, what you see in the beginning, like you see, or, or it's, it's, if you think of like stress, we are stressed before Christmas, as we had had Christmas recently, and uh, we're stressed before an exam, and we're, we're acute stressed in and kind of abnormal but uh, survivally way. I mean, it's it's we get stressed before an exam, and that's normal. We get stressed before talking in front of a lot of people, that's normal. Our our system turns on, and that's the way we cope. When we go into traumatic conditions, then we can see that our old brain, if we want to call it like that, our dinosaur brain, uh, we can see that we can do, in when we stand in front, like many people know, when we stand in front uh, situations where we, like our life or our children's or our loved one's lives are depending on it, we can do amazing stuff. The, the thing most people know, we can lift a car from a, from a person lying underneath it. Afterwards, we don't understand how we did that. And the body is completely exhausted afterwards. But this, this is the possibility. We have this. I mean, the, the cortisol is, is, we're getting into the overproduction of cortisol, which is stress uh, hormone. And the uh, adrenaline is overproductive as well. And the body is just like in superpower state. So this is what happens when we get traumatized. And the same is you hear your child can die or in that sentence, your child has cancer. So, so all your mental and physical being is like, I need to get through this in the, in the sense of the dinosaur brain. It's like fight or flight and most of us fight. But we, we cannot be in that state for so long because we will we, like if you stand and hold that car for many days you will definitely lose your hands in the end i mean you can't do that so uh, we have a great scientist uh, bruce McEwen, that has been looking into what is called uh, what what happens afterwards i mean the the cortisol what happens it can't be overproductive for such a long time so what happens afterwards when you stand in a situation that you have to be super, super alert, but you cannot be in fight or flight. So he has been looking into what happens then. Okay, the cortisol goes down, maybe not to a normal level, but it goes into an overproduction, but not in the sense that you can be awake uh, and not eat and like holding that car for forever. So uh, that is what is called allostasis uh, because the body or the the human or the biological person it, we also see this in other other uh, like every 
a living being, we see this that we, when we have been into this kind of superhuman powering, we the body needs to go into homeostasis. When you're not, you you can't do that because you you your mind is screaming, my child can still die, and you have to take care of that because your child cannot take care of that. So then, you go into so-called allostasis, where the you cannot go into the equilibrium. So you go into allostasis where you can see that it's still a lot of uh, overproduction cortisol, but not in the same level as when you're in the fight or flight mode. What happens, like uh, studies on, on uh, like rats and other things have shown, is that your body gets torn, like it, it destroys inside the body and you have seen newest studies have shown that the cortisol is after some time months or years coming into a normal production level even under and that is called a cortisol flatline what happens we see is that there becomes an overproduction of so-called pro-inflammatory cytokines it is like a gateway, a gate is opened when the stress is overwhelming still, you are in the allostasis, your body is coming down, it cannot overproduce cortisol. And because when, when the body is overproducing cortisol, the gate is up, the, the pro-inflammatory cytokines, there is no room for that, which is probably why we fight or flight. and. When this happens, that the gate is open, uh, the immune system like falls on one, if you think that it becomes dysfunctional. So suddenly we have probably normal cortisol levels, and this I want to look into, of course, or under, or the cortisol flatline, uh, if you want to say. And suddenly we have an overproduction of this pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is good for the body, not the overproduction. And this is what Ad Apples and uh, other scientists have seen, that suddenly we have these cytokines uh, with different names like um, interleukine number 6 or number 10 and, and tumor necrosis um, alpha. Suddenly we are seeing in different conditions, we see an overproduction of these cytokines, which most probably and this is just a hypothesis um, that might be adding to different kind of autoimmune diseases. Ad Apple saw this in the 80s. He was thinking about uh, inflammation in the, the heart or in the veins. So, so this is just like the, the hot potato today is that we're seeing this in both like if we think about fibromyalgia, we think about heart conditions. We think we see this in in eating disorders. We see this in depression. We see this in PTSD. So the interesting thing is that the overproduction of the pro-inflammatory cytokines, and there are about four or five that we see like again and again and again in all kinds of studies, where we have looked at everything else and. What is left is that we see something happened here, some kind of trauma, long-term distress. The body is on, like, is dysfunctional, and this pro-inflammatory cytokine is doing harm mentally and or physically. So this is what we want to look at today, because and that is why I wanted to look into, and, and I, which I did, I look into the levels of uh, traumatic stress symptoms in correlation, possible correlation to vital exhaustion levels to see because vital exhaustion is a condition developing over uh, a year or many years. So if we can see if there is a correlation and we can see that the trauma levels are high, then we can um, implicate or that this person or persons are in risk of developing vital exhaustion. And we don't want to do that because that is costful for the society and for the person. So, and this was my result. Uh, it was a clear, really, really 
strong correlation between the two. And that is why I developed the um, intervention model as I did. Hmm. Before, before we get into your results, let me repeat what I understood you to say in this process that parents who have children with cancer go through to make sure I, I understand the pathway that you described. So you have a parent who was, whose child was diagnosed with cancer, which is like a traumatic shock to the system. And so all the stress response comes up in the parent and they're having to deal with this experience. And over time, that type of stress and the stress response leads to a, a different balance, so to speak, as opposed to a homeostatic balance that is healthy mm-hmm. for the normal functioning. It's a an allostatic balance, I guess is what you called it, or allostasis. Um, yeah, allostasis, yeah. Okay. And then that leads to kind of the depletion of these reserves uh, in terms of how you can cope, but also leads to prolonged stress hormones and cytokine, uh, you know, pro-inflammatory signals mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. cause this idea of exhaustion. Is that a fair sketch? That that is the biological uh, explanation if we if we want to see it like that because I mean nobody has been able to explain what is vital exhaustion. I mean in the beginning it was vital exhaustion is is a state uh, condition um, of long term distress. It is nothing that happens. That is why I've I thought this. That is nothing that happens like. Uh, a trauma it's, it happens over time so it's a condition that that you can uh intervene you know you can try to i mean as, as the sooner you get the hold of it uh, so to speak the more more uh, uh the more sufficient you should be in in a prophylactical way try to help or like uh, i'm trying to find the english word um stop the person of developing because it's, I mean, vital exhaustion is something you develop over time. So, I mean, the sooner you get into that the person is at at risk, the better chances you have to stop the person developing vital exhaustion, which in the end can be lethal, of course. So the sooner we can get a hold of it, that's what is happening here. And that is why my my model is in a... um, prophylactic manner because i mean this is something we can we can stop it i mean we can intervene that it doesn't have to develop into the state of chronic fatigue where you have to work with people like i've been doing now in the medical clinic for maybe up to i mean six months is the minimum that people have to be off from work and you have to work on i mean then you're in the state that in the end you get a lot of pain. Most people get you always tired. So it's, the symptoms are like you are constantly exhausted, and and that is the only word you can say. You're constantly exhausted. You cannot even you can sleep as much as you want. You cannot take care of your care family. You can definitely not work. Uh, you develop a lot of uh, different um, uh, physical uh, complaints. Uh, Brain fog is one of them. People think they are developing Alzheimer and so on. So, so the thing is that when you get to the condition of vital exhaustion, we could have stopped that many times if we know what symptoms to look after. So, in that sense, vital exhaustion is not the end station because you can be like in a vital exhaustion state for years. And the mean for my patients on the medical clinic I was working at with, like, if we want to say perfectly normal people, uh, Icelandic people that have had life stories or, or um, in traumatized life stories or and or ADHD or other, that from when they are hit, if you say it like that, from the day they are hit from vital exhaustion, it takes around one and a half to two years before they wake up and they cannot move uh, or they cannot go to the bathroom. They cannot. Uh, so, so I mean, so if I would say something, if I would say something measurement uh, in time, uh, I would say from you get to the condition of vital exhaustion, full blown, and that is if you take the uh, clinical cutoff point, which is 14. 
suggested clinical cutoff point, my group of parents had the mean of 18.1, the cancer parent, where the normal population had seven. So on a scale uh, with a max of 42. So everything over 18 or 14, but I did a, a secondary analysis in my group because I realized that my norm population had, um, all of them had also young children. And I realized that having one or uh, more children under the age of 10, that is exhaustive in that sense. So the the clinical cutoff from uh, apples and, and the developers of, of the master questionnaire was 14. So as I saw that in the norm group, around 40% of the norm parents had that, that mean score. I, I cut it up to 20, as uh, they said in, at Apples and in the heart studies. They said that 20 and over, are uh, then you are uh, inducing the risk of cardiac arrest, for example, with 150%. So in my group, they had 18.1. 18.1. So you can imagine that that group is, uh, if we look at it that way, in a large risk of developing at least cardiac diseases and then everything else that you want to look at. That we see the same, if you understand, if we say they see the same pro-inflammatory cytokines in so much as we see in the old, or yeah, the older cardiology studies, which the newest are not that old. There, I think the newest I read was since 2011 from Apples and, and, and Fellows. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, so we're going to have to leave it there. But join us next week as we finish discussing the details of vital exhaustion and discuss what, if anything, can be done about it. You don't want to miss it. Okay, see you then. 